Again, welcome. We're glad you could join us. And let's see, we'll have the ushers come forward to receive the offering. And as they do, go over a few announcements for the week. Kind of a big week. Um, we're planning on closing escrow on the new building tomorrow, so that's exciting. And uh, so a minute after we get the, key, the keys, we're going to start pulling out those pews, seeing seeing what we have to deal with to get those things out. And pretty much all week we'll be doing a lot of stuff the next few weeks. So there's a work day for you guys or, or women who are interested on uh, this Saturday, on the 21st. And so if you want to help, come on out. We'll find plenty of things to do. And then um, all during the week, if you get some spare time, even if you haven't had a chance to tour the building yet or whatever, we'll pretty much be there doing stuff. So should be opened up. Come on by and, uh, you know, see it and, and uh, pick up a few things or, you know, make yourself available. And, uh, but it's really exciting just to know that we're almost there, about ready to move. Our first service, yeah, you're having fun, huh? <laughs> Our first service there will be the 29th of this month. So keep that in mind. If you show up here, we won't be here. There'll be other people having church here, which is great, but, but uh, we'll be over at the other place. Um, let's see, there's a children's church leaders meeting today for first through fifth grade teachers, meeting in the green room after second service. So if you're a children's minister for first through fifth grade, make sure you make that meeting. Uh, men's ministry won't be meeting Saturday because of the work day at the new church from 7.30 until 3 o'clock. Um, junior high and high school parents have a prayer home fellowship where they get together and just pray for the junior high and high school kids and those who minister to them. And they're going to have a special meeting on Thursday, October 26th at 7 p.m. over at the new church. Before we have a chance to have our first service there, they wanted to come over and just have a prayer meeting to pray for all that God's going to do in people's lives as we move. And so you're all invited to come out for that. There are flyers in the foyer. Um, on Halloween, October 31st, we, uh, you know, with the transition and the move and everything, we're not doing an alternative party, but we're working with Compass Bible Church, the church that's going to be coming in and taking over this facility, and so they have a great event planned. If you want to come, you're welcome to bring your kids down there. They're actually meeting at 2A Liberty in Aliso Viejo. Um, it's not too far from here. There are flyers in the foyer to let you know. Also, if you want to bring candy to help with that effort, you can leave it in the foyer there And as we've been collecting that. Also, there's a junior high camp coming up November 10th through the 12th. It's not too late to sign up, and so you can see Todd Beebe for more details. And at this point, she just won't be quiet, a real girl. We're going to dedicate Bailey Trinity Nice to the Lord. Oh, look at that outfit. Well, Bailey, you just look so great. Now, she's at that age where girls start to not like people to hold them, so we'll see how she does. Oh, you're in charge. Yeah, you're good. You're not bugged at nothing. What a doll. Let's bring Bailey to the Lord. 
God, we thank you so much for this special little girl. Such a beautiful gift from you. Only you could have even imagined how to make something so special and would grab our hearts so quickly. And Lord, for the nice family, I just pray that you would be blessing them more and more. I thank you for the way that you've done so much for them. And Lord, giving them this responsibility for this little girl knowing that they are the perfect ones to raise her in in your love and in the knowledge of you. So, Lord, strengthen them and help them to be the family that will just allow her to be everything that you've designed for her to be. Lord, protect her. Look out for her. Help her to learn really early how much you love her and how special she is to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do you think? (laughs) <laughs> she's fine can I keep her sure. <laughs> at night about 11 o'clock right <laughs> yeah that was a piece of cake God bless you Bobby thanks bud hey buddy what do you think of the little tyke she's pretty cool huh yeah it's not like having a brother but <laughs> you're Close so good. yeah On Wednesday nights, we're studying through the book of Proverbs, having a great time. There's so much good stuff there. It teaches itself. I just sit and watch pretty much on Wednesday nights, but uh, we'd like to invite you to come on out on Wednesday nights and, and partake in that. But on Sunday mornings, we're going through the book of Philippians, and so turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of Philippians, and we'll spend a bit of time there this morning. Philippians was a letter that Paul wrote to his favorite church. These guys supported him and loved him and cared for him in a way that no one else did. And you could just see the affection that he has for the church. He had started the church himself back when he was a prisoner in Philippi. But now he was a prisoner in Rome and things were getting serious. He was awaiting his final appeal before the death sentence. And as he was imprisoned in a dungeon there in Rome, he wrote this letter to the Philippian Christians. And of all things, the letter is about joy. Now, back when Paul had first been in Philippi, they saw him. One of the early first members of the church was the jailer who was guarding him as he and Silas were singing praise songs in the middle of the night after having been beaten and imprisoned, chained up. And so they knew this was a guy who could find joy almost anywhere. But here in this book, they were suffering, he was suffering, it was difficult. He knew they were worried about him, and so he chose to to lay out for them principles of how to find joy even when you're in prison, how to find joy even when things aren't going your way. And I think it's one of the reasons why this is one of my favorite books, if not my favorite book of the Bible, because in our lives, it just doesn't always go the way we want it to. Things don't always unfold exactly the way we've planned. And yet, it's the joy of the Lord that's our strength. If we can't figure out how to enjoy life the way it is, then we will have absolutely no effectiveness for Jesus Christ. We'll have no strength at all. And yet, it's possible, and Paul demonstrates it in a huge way. We can find joy even when we are in difficulties. And this book just lays it out for us, and he exemplifies it in in powerful ways, really. 
And so a lot of great lessons for us to learn here. We're picking up with verse 12, and he begins, in, in, in verses 12 and 13, Paul says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard, or the praetorium, they were the elite guards, and to all the rest, that my chains are in Christ. Paul's in jail. Jail was a miserable place to be, especially in those days. And yet he's saying, you know what? Everything that's happened to me, it's worked out great. Now, what is he talking about, the things that happened to me? You know, that's such a funny thing. The things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. The kinds of things that happened to him were things like everywhere he went, practically, he was beaten. He was stoned several times, left for dead. He received 39 lashes, just one short of what was legal. You know, shipwrecked and, and out in the middle of the sea. Not only that, he's superintending over churches, and there were constantly people who were lying about him, questioning his validity, questioning his apostolic authority. There were other people who were writing letters pretending like it was written by him and it really wasn't him. He was being victimized by so much, it would seem his life was just a tragedy. And yet he talks about that life and not to mention the fact that he was in prison now and he goes, oh yeah, those things. Like his attitude was, yeah, stuff happens. That's just stuff. But how in the world can you keep that kind of a perspective? Well, for him, the key was, he said, it all worked out best for the gospel because this is what I care about. This is my priority. And as he says, it's become evident to the whole palace guard, to all the praetorian and to all the rest, that my chains are in Christ, that there's a point to what I'm suffering. Now, we know from extra-biblical history that Paul, the Romans had a real problem with Paul. They were concerned because he was a guy who had the potential to really create trouble for Rome. He had people all over the Roman Empire who looked to him as their leader. And he was a powerful teacher of truth and freedom. And he talked a lot about not being enslaved and things like that. And so he was a threat. And they tried to keep him locked up as much as they could. In fact, so much so that when Paul was in prison, they were afraid that his friends would come and break him out because they were such zealots, that they chained him to one of the elite praetorian guard. He would always be handcuffed to another soldier. I mean, you couldn't get more security for a prisoner than that. But what happened is, as Paul's sitting there chained to a guy, he just started sharing with him what God had done in his life and began to share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul looked at it as, hey, great, I have a captive audience. Uh, who's, the, who's the prisoner here? Buddy, you're going to listen. And, you know, they would walk in, and here's this elite guy praying with Paul. They're, since they're chained together, they both have their hands raised, praising the Lord, and they're like, not again. What is this? And so they go, that's it, you're on another detail. So they take that guy and they loosen him and they send him off so that he can tell all his buddies what had happened and they bring some new guy in and Paul looks at him like, hey, fresh meat, good. 
And they would give him the toughest and the most ornery guys. Okay, here's a guy who there's no way he's going to become a Christian. Chain him to Paul. And you know, some of you were this person. The person who is the least likely to accept Jesus Christ is quite often the person who deep down inside is starting to discover that life isn't what we thought it was. And so often, again, those people were getting saved. So there's a huge revival springing forth from Paul's dungeon, from the prison cell, and spreading throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. Now, back when, you know, Paul was first saved, it was prophesied of him that he would be a light to the Gentiles, that he would suffer many things, but then it went on to say that even despite his suffering, that God was going to show the gospel in an unprecedented way. So his sufferings had been prophesied. His ministry had been prophesied. He knew what to expect, and God used it. God fulfilled that promise. And for Paul, the gospel was worth it. Seeing people's lives changed was worth all of the trouble that he was going through. And so he said, hey, it's great. They put me in here, and now everybody in here is getting saved. And they're going out and they're telling other people. It's more powerful in a way because as the prophecy of Paul was also that he would testify to rulers and kings. Well, how's he going to do that? But actually by reaching those elite bodyguards of Caesars, then he was able to reach the rulers. And he was able to have an influence. And he looked at it and goes, this is great. There's no place I'd rather be. We would look at it and go, oh, it's so sad because when Paul was free, he was out there preaching to all these people. But Paul's going, it's even better when I'm chained up because now I have that captive audience. I have people who are influential that I can reach. And so to him, it was like, great. I love this. This is awesome. And I'm being supported by the government to do it. Now, what does that have to do with us? Most of us aren't, you know, most of us aren't chained up, are we, literally? And yet, there are areas of our lives where we aren't where we really want to be. And we aren't with who we would really like to be with. And we feel like we're stuck and imprisoned in one way or another. For you, your prison might be your job slaving away in a dead-end job. You can't stand the people around you. You don't like what you're doing. You don't see a future to it, but you know if you quit your job, it's a lot harder to find another job if you're not working. And they start asking why you aren't working, and you tell them, well, that job was just crummy, and they're thinking, yeah, and you're going to say that about this job later, or they'll call your boss, and they'll go, just a flake that left. And you're, So you're stuck in a job. It doesn't pay enough, you don't like the people you work with, and it's just making you miserable. For some of you, your job might be your prison. For others of you, your prison might be the background that you have, things that you've gone through in your life that have hurt you, that shut you off, that cause you to not be able to form the kind of relationships that you really need because you've really been hampered by hurts in your past. Some of you actually may feel like you're chained to your spouse. You're imprisoned with your spouse. It's like, how did I ever link up with this person? Maybe your spouse isn't a Christian, or maybe your spouse is a Christian, and they're just making you miserable. 
And let's just suppose for just a minute that you didn't make them that way. They were always like that. But now somehow you woke up. You're stuck. You're like, I don't know, I can't bail. People be mad at me. I'm afraid God won't forgive me. And so here I am, chained to each other. Man, when we were younger, we would hold hands as just a sensitive expression of our, of our love for each other. Today, when we hold hands, it's because I want to know where their hands are. So <laughs> they can't hit me while I'm holding their hand. They can't shoot me or put a knife in my back. And so there you are, imprisoned in a marriage till death do us part. Oh, man. Like the guy who... On his 25th anniversary, he was down in the living room crying. In the middle of the night, his wife came down. Oh, what's the matter, honey? He goes, well, I just realized that our anniversary, 25th anniversary is tomorrow. And, and she was like, oh, that's sweet. You know, and he goes, I was just thinking back to that day when your dad caught us. And he said, look, either you marry her or you're going to jail for 25 years. And he said, I married you, and it just hit me. I'd be getting out of jail right now. <laughs> and so for some people, you know, marriage feels like a trap. Other people are imprisoned by their financial situation. You just don't have enough money. You can't pay your bills. You're afraid of losing everything. You'd like to move to a cheaper place to live, but you can't afford first and last month's rent in order to make that transition. And there you are, stuck. Other people have lots of money, and the money is their trap, is their prison. They're chained to having to manage that money, to protect those assets, to make decisions so that the government doesn't get all your money, and that becomes just a, a regimented, structured entrapment of your life. So I don't know what your prison is, but every one of us finds ourselves in places where we would rather not be. Now, I'm going to give you a real simple task, and this will tell you what your prison is, at least one of them. Just think this way. Today, if I gave you one wish to change something in your life, not world peace, you know, or a billion dollars, or well, but really just one thing that if you could just go like this and it would change in your life, what would you change? That's your prison. That will indicate to you what you feel is a prison, what you don't accept, what you wish would be different for you. Now, in thinking of that, how do you look at that burden? How do you look at that prison? Because for God, our prison is always his opportunity, as it was for Paul. For us, there's a chance in that situation to do something significant, to bring improvement to the situation. And God may have allowed you to be so blinded that you married someone who is so miserable because God wanted to show his love through you so that that person could be changed so that you could then celebrate. There's, there's nothing like a relationship where someone thinks they almost lost it, and then they get it. Because when much has been forgiven, there's much love, Jesus said. And it might be that the groundwork for your relationship to be everything that God wants it to be is the fact that right now you're pretty miserable in that relationship. But God isn't finished. 
And he put you there for a reason. So many of us, we look at our lives and we think, okay, how can I avoid the pain that I'm in? If I'm in prison, my first thought is how to break out, how to get away. You know, I just, the very first, you know, cake that somebody brings you, you hope there's a file in there. And that's the way we live our lives. That was for you people who are younger, in old, old movies, they used to be able to break out of jail with a file. We know it takes a lot more than that today. But did God put you where you are for a reason? Has he, does he have a plan that you're missing out on because you're not looking for the one who is to be reached? You're not looking for the opportunity that he is giving you. And if we are ever going to have joy while we're in prison, then we have to have this perspective that God has a plan and there's an opportunity here for something great. Now, I'm not talking about, and when we see Paul's joy, we don't see the joy that comes from someone who's just so blind to the circumstances, so ridiculously optimistic that they have no concept of reality at all. I mean, if you can be that kind of a person, great for you, you'd be happier than most people, but most people aren't like, you know, the story about the kid who was just so optimistic no matter what would happen, this kid just believed the best, and his dad, who was real negative and mean, just wanted to teach him a lesson on Christmas. His kid was so looking forward to Christmas, excited about what he was going to get, and so when the kid came downstairs, went to the Christmas tree, there's this huge pile of manure that his dad had put in there with a bow on it. And the kid just got excited, starts jumping in the manure, throwing it around. The dad goes, what's wrong with you? Are you nuts? And the kid goes, man, with all this manure, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. (laughs) But that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about saying, God, why have you put me where I am? It might be that you're married in a situation that's not ideal. It might be that you're not married and you would want to be. It might mean you're working in a job that's kind of miserable or things aren't going well for you or you don't have enough money. Whatever it is, God has a plan. And it's exciting to try to discover what he is doing. At that job that you're so miserable at, just think, and I I talk to people all the time whose prayer request is that God would find me another job. And sometimes I'll ask them, or what would happen if there were just a couple of Christians that all of a sudden started working there? And they were really great. You got along with them. You guys could fellowship. And they're like, oh, that would be awesome. That would be so great. I go, what if your boss accepted the Lord? How would that change things? Oh, man, that would be great. Well, guess what? You might be the vehicle for that happening. The Lord may have put you in that place with so much darkness so that you can shine some light and make a difference and lead people to the Lord and see God change them. And as God changes people, God will change the environment. And then you might appreciate it so much that you'll go, you know, it's time for me to get another job with no Christians at it and do this all over again. This is fun. This is exciting. Besides the fact that if you're working with all non-Christians, It'll be one of the only experiences of your life where you're really better than everyone else. You always think you are. But But look at your prison as an opportunity and, and joy is going to come up.
because you're excited about what God could do. As soon as you lose that excitement, as soon as you lose the enthusiasm, as soon as you give up hope, then your joy is gone, and since the joy of the Lord is your strength, your strength is gone. But Paul was the guy who said, oh, I have to be chained to someone? Great. He has to be chained to me, too. That's the only way to do it. And he used the opportunity to bring glory to God by reaching out and showing God's love to the people who were chained to him, and then they told other people. But it goes even beyond that, because not only did his, op- his prison become his opportunity, but look at verse 14. He says, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He says, Another cool thing, not only am I getting to minister to these people, lead them to the Lord, and see them leading other people to the Lord, but those who aren't in prison see me in prison, and they're getting boldness. They're not afraid to get out there and share the truth with people. Now, you know, I look at this, and I think, how in the world did that work? If you go, Paul preached, and they beat him and locked him up, that makes me want to preach, too. It wasn't him being imprisoned that caused them to have boldness. It had to have been them seeing him in there having a good time, rejoicing, excited about what God was doing. Because if someone goes ahead of us and says, hey, it's not bad, it's like you don't want to be the first person to dive into a swimming pool because you want somebody to get in and go, yeah, it's not that cold. You don't want to be the one that dives into a pool that's not heated and, you know, you're freezing, chilling, you get outside and you're even colder. Or if you go on a hike and you're heading off on a trail, but it doesn't look like too many people have been on the trail, but you're walking along and you're like, oh, I hope this is worth it. And every once in a while you see a place where there's a long slide and down at the bottom there's a skeleton with a backpack strapped to it, you know, and you're like, hmm, But what if you're with somebody who says, I have been up this trail a hundred times before, and it is well worth it. And besides that, those skeletons with the backpacks, I put those there just to keep tourists away. It's all, don't worry, it's perfectly safe, and when you get to the top, you're going to see a view like you've never seen before. How emboldened would you be? How much would you just be going, I can't wait now. I'm glad somebody went there first. And so as Paul set that example for these guys, and to them, the biggest thing they were probably afraid of was, as new Christians, would be, man, if somebody finds out, I could get thrown in jail. I could get beaten. But to have a guy like Paul who goes, I've been there and done that, it's not that big of a deal. You actually get used to it. And not only that, God does some really cool things through that. And it's well worth it. And I'm having a great time. What a powerful thing that does as an example to others. And we in our lives need to realize too, not only that our imprisonments can become God's opportunities, but also we need to realize that people are watching us and we're setting an example. They derive their opinion of the world based on how they see us reacting to the world if they respect us. One of the areas where this is just vitally important is in kids. Kids and grandkids, those we influence, those who look up to us, 
if we're Sunday school teachers, the kids in our Sunday school class, because kids are watching how you react to circumstances, and they pick up from that what their perspective ought to be on life. And your kids learn a lot more from you than you may think they do. You can either live your life in such a way that emboldens your kids, that causes them to want to love God and to move forward and to take risks, or you can teach your kids that you just need to be really careful and really safe and we're real paranoid and every time they're going to step out in the yard, you know, they get the whole talk about the, you know, the, all the crazy people out there that kidnap kids and we do so much damage to kids by being afraid of life ourselves. The truth is, it's more likely that your kid's going to get struck by lightning that they're going to get kidnapped by a stranger. Now, they may get kidnapped, but the most likely person to kidnap them is sitting next to you. It's usually parents who kidnap their own kids. Now, I'm not belittling. Oh, it's a tragedy when a kid gets kidnapped as much as it's a tragedy when a kid gets struck by lightning. But here's the thing. If we're just constantly paranoid about it, we put that fear on kids, and that's what they learn. At the same time in our lives, if every time we pay the bills, we're moaning and groaning and our kids start to hear things that make them think that parents are about to get a divorce and that, oh man, we're broke and we have all kinds of problems and we're really worried, we're sending them a wrong message. We're sending them a message that says, God's not in control. God won't protect us. God doesn't take care of us. He doesn't, we can't have confidence in him. And the sad thing is, and those of you who have experienced this know this, that kids have a tendency when things go wrong to feel like it's their fault. Crazy thing. I mean, three and four and five-year-old kids who when their parents get a divorce, they think it's their fault. Even when they've never heard their parents argue about them and no one's ever blamed them. I was thinking about this this week, and here's a theory that you can give it some credence or you can just forget about it, but I was thinking how, how uh, little kids, when they're born, everything revolves around them. They are the center of the universe. And, and so, as a result, everyone who's there is there for them. That's all they can see. Now, as kids get older, they realize they aren't the center of the universe, and now they tend to, as they're older, just kind of discount the importance of everything. But somewhere in that transitional phase, it's such a critical time for kids because there's still a part of them that think the world revolves around them, and the parents who they love and the parents who they are trusting and depending on are now having a problem and they see it's their problem, and they internalize it, and they take it upon themselves much more than they should makes sense to me, and, and uh, I talked to Stacy, who's a psychologist, about it, and, and she didn't say I was nuts, so maybe there's something to it. At any rate, do we understand how much we affect those around us? What if the people that you know only ever experienced the level of joy that you've experienced? What if no one that you ever contacted would ever be happier than you? How would the world be? Because sometimes, as we're just feeling sorry for ourselves, we're sending out a message that says, life hurts, and it's difficult, and it's lousy, and it's not worth it, and I don't know if I want to go on. And, I, and it's like, wait a minute. Paul realized, while I'm in prison, if I'm moping around, 
If I'm sending out fundraising letters talking about how rough it is, what's that going to do to people who are outside? What's that going to do to those new Christians and those who are just forming their ideas about what, what being a Christian is all about? How will that affect them? On the other hand, when they hear from Paul and he's gone, I'm having a great time, man. God's doing so much. I am so blessed. They're affected. They go, I guess we can be bold too. We can do what he is doing because it looks like he's never been happier. And that was for real. He wasn't faking it. It was true. And how important it is that we understand that little eyes are watching us and big eyes too. And their courage or their paranoia may be very well connected to how you handle what you are going through right now, your prison, how you adapt to circumstances that are around you. I'd love it if I could have the effect on people that they would feel like, man, I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. I want to act like somebody who really believes this stuff, that walking with God really does bless your life and that it's good. And I feel so bad when sometimes I I feel like I give people the impression that my life is so tough. Something that we have to fight. It's one of the big battles that we face. But Paul understood this doesn't just affect me. It affects the people that I'm reaching for Christ, but it affects other people as well in terms of what their worldview is, of how they see things. And if they know that I can laugh at this, I believe that when they would talk to Paul, he would joke about his chains. And he would introduce his guard as going, yeah, this is my next victim. (laughs) He hasn't accepted the Lord yet. Doesn't even like to hear about it, but why don't you share with him? Look, he's got to stay here. Go ahead, do the four spiritual laws. Come on, you've heard it. Let's hear it again. Uh, he, He seemed to find the capacity to have fun with his circumstances. I've gone to visit people in the hospital who are that way, and I love it. You know, you're going to visit someone in the hospital, and you're feeling like, oh, man, what am I going to say? Especially if you come in, and they're just, they look awful, and they're really miserable, and, and then the only thing they can get out of their mouth is, why, why? I was like, oh, shoot, I'm supposed to have an answer to that? But so often, you get in there, and the people are joking about their scars, and, and they're kidding with the nurses, and they're, they bring light into the room. What an opportunity when you're in the hospital. They have to help you. They can't report you for, for sharing with them. They're being paid to tend to your every need. And I've seen people who have been such an example that it makes you think, man, if you're in the hospital, God can do some things through it. And if I have to go to the hospital, I'm going to remember those people and how they dealt with it. I've also visited people in the hospital who just everyone in the hospital hated them. They were just absolutely miserable, blaming everyone for everything and threatening to sue everyone and, oh, you people are so... And it's like... That's sad, but it also makes you think, oh, man, I hope I never have to go to the hospital. I hope I never have to have that condition or that surgery or whatever. So Paul recognized, I'm an example, and how I deal with what I have to deal with is going to affect how other people end up living their lives. And so he said, my joy has been a great witness to others. And then, as he goes on in verse 15, he talks about, and in these last four verses here, 15, 16, 17, 18, he talks about different people who are 
preaching the gospel. And some of them were, they had great hearts, they're loving people, they sincerely wanted to share the good news with people. But others of them were just being selfish, were just preaching in order to promote themselves. And some of them even to take advantage of the fact that he wasn't around to correct them. And those people who Paul had ministered to, and he had refused to even take gifts that they wanted to give him, these guys were coming in and going, hey, we can cash in on the fact that, you know, Paul isn't around. And we can benefit from what he has done. And he says, some indeed, verse 15, preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul says, I see what's going on out there. And I'm really happy when I see people who are sincerely sharing the gospel. But what about those other people? He goes, I'm happy when I see selfish jerks sharing the gospel. I'm going to rejoice either way. Because it's not about the person who's preaching. It's about the message of the cross. The gospel, that good news that says... Jesus Christ came and died for you, and he took your sins. And if you accept him, he rose from the dead, and you'll be able to go to heaven with him someday and live with him forever. He will forgive you of every sin you've ever committed. That's the message. That's the great news. And it's great news that applies to everyone who doesn't know it or hasn't received it. And how they got it isn't the issue. When I look at people who in the name of ministry you know, the word minister means servant. They use the term for waiters. The root source of the word is a word that means somebody who kicks up dust. That's what a minister is supposed to be like. But when I see people calling themselves reverend or declaring themselves to be ministers, and it's really obvious from looking at them that it's all about selfish ambition. It's all about self-promotion, self-aggrandizement. They're doing this, and you know, if there wasn't a bunch of money in it and there weren't a lot of people in it, they wouldn't do it at all. They'd find something else to do. But this is a great scam that they've locked onto because their last pyramid thing didn't work out or whatever. So now they're, now they're you know, out there preaching the gospel as a, as a way to profit. Oh, it's horrible. It's a terrible thing to do, and it, and it grieves me, and it angers me when people use ministry as a way to be selfish. But as much as it bums me out, it didn't bum Paul out at all. He looked, and he goes, I don't care. Jesus is being preached. That's all I care about. I don't care why they're doing it. I don't care how they twist it for their purposes. The gospel is so powerful. That good news of Jesus Christ is so powerful that it even works with those weirdos on Christian television. It's still, the gospel comes through. It even works in churches where maybe the pastor hasn't come into a relationship with Jesus Christ yet, but they're preaching that good news and it has power. And Paul would look at that and go, that's what matters. Christ is being preached and I'm gonna rejoice. And boy, how helped we would be if we as members of the body of Christ, would have those kinds of priorities and that kind of an attitude. 
Oh, you know, anytime you try to do anything for the Lord, somebody's going to question your motives. It doesn't matter. You can be doing a job that's the most miserable job that no one else wants to do. You know, you could be this week over at our new building, and there's a, there's a stuffed-up drain that's all full of mud and crud and dead rats and everything, and you could be getting a spade and, and cleaning that thing out, and somebody may come along and tell you you're not doing it right, you know, or you're just doing it so I notice you, and it's like, what? But all of those distractions that happen get off the main point. Hey, if good is being done, let's rejoice, and let's not worry about why it's being done or even how it's being done. You know, a while back when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out, watched the movie, and, you know, it wasn't my favorite movie. There were a lot of things with that movie that I certainly would have done differently were I in the movie business. And honestly, still looking at the movie, I've seen it several times, and it's not my favorite movie. It's not even my favorite Mel Gibson movie, frankly. I mean, I definitely Braveheart and probably that first Lethal Weapon movie are, you know, but, sorry. But I could sit there and spend my time saying what's wrong with the movie, or I could go, you know what, that movie got a bunch of people talking about Jesus who wouldn't have done it otherwise. And so I absolutely rejoice in the fruit of the movie, and I'm not going to make a list of all the things that were wrong with it. I don't care. It got people talking about Jesus, and there's power in his name, and there's power in talking about him. Now, if that doesn't offend you, let me take it a step further. The Catholic Church. Now, I know people who are in the Catholic Church that are Christians and love God. So that'll stumble some of you right there. But the Catholics, frankly, also do some things that seem like they're way off to me and teach some things that are kind of weird. But the Catholic Church also teaches that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, that he died and rose from the dead, that his death paid for our sins, and that he's in heaven right now. Now, forget about all the little portraits of Mary that show up on tortillas and things like that. It's, <laughs> it's like Christ is being preached, and when was the last time that you drove past a Catholic church that was overflowing all these cars, or, or you thought about you know, South and Central America where the Catholic church is just booming, and when was the last time you go, that's pretty cool? Oh, no, no, they're preaching another Jesus. And they're, you know, don't send me all your emails from all of these heresy hunters and stuff. I, I know the problems with the Catholic Church. But you know what? I never have a better time sharing the Lord with somebody more than with a Catholic. Because they understand all the basic stuff. Most of them don't know Jesus Christ personally. Most of them don't understand that they need to enter into a relationship with him and that they're going to be saved just by grace. They don't have to do anything. But compared to arguing with some postmodernist who doesn't even believe there was a Jesus, give me a Catholic any day. Some kid that ever since he was little memorized some of the truths of what God has said. And when I realized that, yeah, Catholics aren't done, but I'm not done either. And I look at it and go, as far as I'm concerned, the Catholic Church is a pretty decent introduction to ultimately a real relationship with God. 
Now, do I send people to that church? I think there are better places to learn about God. But most of the people in the Catholic Church, I would never have a shot at. They're going to the Catholic Church because of tradition, because of their family, because of their heritage or whatever. And I've started thinking, you know what? I'm glad that there's some place that these people can go and hear about Jesus. We can finish the job. But the same thing goes for a lot of churches today that, that preach a, you know, and, and one of the big accusations against all these, so many different churches is, well, they're all new age and everything. Well, you know what? Maybe they are. And maybe deep down inside there's something really wrong and really weird that's going on. But I'm of the inclination that if somebody's preaching Jesus Christ, if they're giving the gospel out, eventually the Spirit of God is going to draw people from something that's not feeding them to something that does. And many of you are a testimony of that. You were saved in a place that was way off. Some of you, I know people in our church who were saved out of groups that we call cults. Others who went to churches where it was like really shallow and empty. Eventually, God's faithful and he brings you around and and he lets you know that there's something more. But is our perspective, you know what, if they're talking about the real Jesus, the one who is God in the flesh, who died and rose from the dead, most Protestant churches nowadays don't even teach that gospel. So if somebody is teaching that gospel, I'm glad, I'm happy. And I'm not up here to bag on any church, and please don't take my comments as as being that. What I'm up here to do is saying, it's about Jesus. It's about him. And if he is alive, I'm happy. I have joy. Now, I may be imprisoned in certain situations in my life, things I can't control, but God can turn those into opportunities. And at the same time, I'm going to be aware. Some people are watching how I react to life, and they're drawing their conclusions about what life is based on how I handle it. And I want to see, have them see me having a good time. If that isn't the case, I'm giving them nothing. And ultimately, it's all about Jesus. It's all about the gospel. It's an amazing thing that he said that most of the brethren, there in verse 14, have become confident and bold to speak the word without fear. Can you imagine what would happen if most of the people who are in our church this morning just had boldness to go tell people about Jesus? If everyone in our church, most of you, 51% of us, each would this week tell one person about Jesus. What a powerful impact that could have. And, and yet, so often in Christianity, we're more concerned with other things than we are with the gospel, with the gospel being out there. So we're more concerned about how we can get happy and how we can be healthy and how we can have a better life. And, and we build up all of these practical things as if that's the news that we present. We can't afford to forget. Paul wouldn't let us forget It's about the gospel. It's the gospel. It's Jesus. It's the good news. Jesus died for you and rose from the dead. That's what it's about. And that should be our concern. And nothing should make us happier and more joy-filled than to see people hearing the gospel. There should be no bigger thrill in your life than to see someone's eyes light up 
when it sinks in. God loves them. Jesus died for them. He can deliver them. And it's not just about how many people can we get in heaven, man. Let's pack it like an old Volkswagen. That's not the idea. It's that people are miserable and dying and hating life. And the message that we have is something that can turn that around and give them hope and give them joy. But if we don't present that message, it won't be spread. And if we present that message in a way that it sounds like, hey, come on and join up with us. You can be as miserable as we are. Not too many people are going to be drawn to it. Paul was just a light who had been through more than any of us could ever imagine. And he goes, oh, that stuff, so worth it. I'm rejoicing, and I will rejoice. And people can attack me and rip me and say bad things about me, and they can take advantage and rip off my people. I don't care. As long as Jesus is being talked about, I'm happy. I'm rejoicing, and I will rejoice. And he set that example for us. And we can be emboldened in the same way that those people in Rome and those people in Philippi were emboldened. And we realize, you know, you can do this. You really can live life with joy. But the only way to do it, the gospel. Jesus Christ. To value him over everything else. To say that if there's one thing that would just really excite me is people hearing about Jesus, committing their lives to him, realizing how much he loves us. And that ought to put joy in our heart. You know, the real joy comes from Jesus. I'm convinced that a lot of Christians are miserable because they don't ever share Jesus. They haven't tapped into that joy. They just want to stay kind of low-key and, well, you know, I witness with my life. And absolutely, that's important. But sometimes if you don't witness with your mouth too, it's not going to happen. And nothing is more thrilling than leading someone to the Lord. Nothing is more thrilling than to see things happening for Jesus. And if our joy is there, he's always working. And we will always be, be happy. We'll always be rejoicing. Because he's working in huge ways, much bigger than, than we sometimes think, much bigger than we could imagine. He has a great plan. We can't lose. And we, of all people, should live in joy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the example that Paul is to us. And Lord, the example that you were to us as it was for the joy that was set before you that you endured the cross, though you despised the shame. Lord, many of us have been really poor examples. You put us in prison and we do everything we can to break out. And we miss those opportunities and we miss the chance to be an example to others. And Lord, frankly, we put you way down on our list of priorities. And we get upset when everyone else isn't just like us instead of rejoicing that they're putting your name out there. And Lord, we want to rejoice. We want to enjoy the life that you've given us. We want to enjoy watching what you do. We want to live there. So Lord, help us. Strengthen us. 
Give us a perspective. Help us to dump our burdens off on you and to live a life of joy by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.